Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals Evan Grant and David Moore. Fellas, it was a crazy weekend in uh, Dallas sports. We had the uh, Rangers up and the Cowboys down. I don't know that we were counting on either one of those things. Uh, it's a toxic, dramatic toxic reversal. World. Yeah, oh dramatic God. reversal of fortune here uh, in the uh, Metroplex. Uh, so it's been, been kind of crazy. Uh, Evan is uh, out in uh, Los Angeles or Anaheim. Uh, for that series for the Angels. And uh, David, you're still here, aren't you? Uh, in, in your lovely abode? I, I am here uh, racing and preparing for the invasion of the New England Patriots and former star running back Ezekiel Elliott this weekend. But now covering one of the worst teams in football history versus what may have been <laughs> the best team in football history for this game this past weekend. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love that when, when Dak Prescott told you uh, people out there at the Star that uh, you had us on top of the world. And, and, and of course, the old, uh, yeah, this is the media's fault. Uh, you we, built us up so you could tear us down. Yeah, we'd love to do that, don't we? Oh, my gosh. We're the we're the world's worst at that kind of thing. The whole time I'm writing something good about somebody, I'm thinking, I can't wait. I can't wait till they fail. Oh, and then I can just jump all over them. Boy, it's such a Machiavellian world we live in, you know, that, that all this devious media out there. You know, for years and years, they write nice stuff about people. Then they write one bad thing. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you're all over us. You, you're such a pig writing this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Everything's a purity test now. But again, just to prove that. Evan is disgusted with football talk and says the Rangers are better now than the Cowboys. So why are we starting off with the Cowboys? That's exactly right. Yeah. And and because of that, and because of what Dak said, you're right, Dak. Y'all are no longer on top of the world and no longer on top of this podcast even. So we're going to start with the Rangers and make the Cowboys second. And maybe by putting the Cowboys second in this podcast, they'll be able to bounce back against the Patriots and win that and win that game and get right back where they belong. And then maybe we'll think about putting them back on top of the podcast, but maybe not. You know, if the Rangers keep this up, maybe they'll be number one. Maybe this will be a Rangers town, a baseball town. You know, I don't think so. I don't I really don't think so, but but you know, but not it won't be because of us. Let's say that. So we're going to start out with the Rangers. Uh, Evan, this has been a remarkable couple of weeks here in the market. As David alluded to earlier, you know, just two weeks ago, we were ready to write the Rangers off. You know, they they were just streaking badly. Uh, and now all of a sudden, and with a lot of help from the Kansas City Royals and even the Oakland A's, uh, they find themselves two and a half games in front as we take this podcast on Tuesday morning uh, in front of the Astros. And now the Seattle Mariners are four games back after their loss to the Astros on Monday night. Uh, so. Uh, so, Evan, is, is this team going to win the division? You know, you'd like to be able to say with some uh, conviction with six games left exactly where you feel, but the only thing that could stop the Rangers now is a massive losing streak. Unfortunately, <laughs> the draft has been full of long winning streaks followed by massive losing streaks. So, I, I do think that um, the offense with Adolis Garcia back and Josh Young back and Evan Carter uh, and Robbie Grossman now manning a left field pl- platoon, um, the lineup is far more dangerous than it's been for months. And this was this team's strength for a good portion of the year. And they are, you know, as we sit here taping this, they're coming off a 10 home run barrage over the last two games. This team can slug. Uh, and when it's healthy, it can slug. When it's fresh, it can slug. I, I think a big part, a big upside of Adolis Garcia's injury was the 10 days that it got him to rest because I think that body was worn down. I think mentally he was worn down. And I think we're, we're seeing we're seeing the Adolis Garcia that the Rangers saw in the first half, a guy who didn't chase, who didn't expand the strike zone, uh, and who did have enough life in his bat to catch up with fastballs. So 
the lineup I feel good about. The pitching, the, the starting pitching, I mean, John Gray left last night's game with wrist soreness. The Rangers said, ah, it's nothing major, but, you know, I don't know. Outside of Jordan Montgomery, I don't know what healthy, really healthy options they have in the rotation at the moment. Dane Dunning has bounced back, but the rotation certainly has not been the same as it was for the first half of the season. The bullpen the last few days has, you know, held the line, um, and that's been the biggest weakness. So it, it's really hard to figure this team out from day to day, but I do think that at the risk of not seeing another losing streak on the horizon, I do think this team has kind of righted the ship. I think they smell it and they feel it and they are – leaning into it and Kevin I know we can get into this a little bit more I think the best development over the last few days now that the offense has kind of stabilized is we have seen some both gutty and dominant performances from the bullpen and and I've, I've said this to you all year you know as weak as the bullpen has been there have been individual guys out there who have had good stretches if five of those guys time up those stretches together my goodness, this team could be really dangerous in the postseason. Yeah, I believe that too. Uh, you know, the, the the I want to start first though with your comments about the offense. You know, and and about Adolis. I I brought that up the other day uh, to the general manager uh, when we were standing in the dugout before the game. And I, I, so I said, I I think this is the best thing that could have happened to him was uh, this uh, injury and, and sitting out. Uh, you know, it just seems to me, and I and I said that to Chris Young. Um, I think you guys in the second half of the season are going to have to. Have to start sitting him down more often, you know, and just giving him a, a couple of days, and maybe even a couple of days off at a time, uh, because clearly this is what happens to him. He he starts to get tired, uh, and and I think it, it does affect him mentally and physically. He looks now just like he looked in the first half. Uh, that that opposite field home run he hit last night, another perfect example of that. You know, he's just really uh, much better now, much more comfortable. He is taking pitches. You know, uh, you know they they talked about that after the game last night on on the Valley Crew there with Mike Bassick and Mark McLemore uh, talking about how well they're you know they're they're swinging at first pitches and they do and of course we know that Corey Seager does that all the time uh, but they're swinging the pitches you know being patient and this goes way back we've talked about this before being patient doesn't mean you take good pitches if someone throws you a pitch that you really like it's right in your zone well then swing at it. The thing is, don't be swinging at stuff when a you know, guy's throwing a slider and it's starting out about a foot off the ground. <laughs> don't be swinging at that kind of stuff. And that's what they're not doing. They're not. They're not chasing pitches up and out of the strike zone. They're 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 waiting for the pitches that they want. They're being much more patient and selective. I, I would say selective is a better word than patient in this case. And and so they're they're doing that. So that that really takes care of that offense. I think if you can get those guys to do that, it pretty much takes care of their offense. They're very capable. Of, of of mashing the ball as you pointed out. Now on the on the pitching side of it, Jonathan Hernandez, when he came back uh, from his little sojourn uh, in the minor leagues, uh, he looked shell shocked. In those games when he first pitched and came back, his body language after a pitch uh, was awful, uh, and I, I didn't know if he would ever recover from that. Well, now he apparently has. I thought last night he looked as comfortable as he's been, uh, you know, in years uh, on the mound. I just thought he looked really good. I mean, you know, he got himself in a little bit of trouble. It really wasn't his fault. I, I, I thought on that on that ball, on that high hopper that loaded the bases and Corey Seager kind of fielded on a short hop. I, you know, Corey's very – he's had a really nice year defensively. I just really wish he'd tried to catch that ball on the fly instead of trying to catch it on a short hop and then he bobbled it and then he, he gets out of that inning a lot easier but it also allowed uh hernandez to to face that that now he's got the bases loaded how's he going to get out of it and he did uh and then we, we've seen jose leclerc pitch much better his velocity is is way up over what it was it's very interesting to me how they can't decide exactly what has been his problem this year uh, bruce boshi told us it was well he's he kind of had a neck problem earlier in the year and he wasn't sleeping well and that was the problem and then when you're when we're asking Leclerc about that after the game the other day it's like well next year I'm going to work on some things in the offseason that are going to allow me to ratchet up my uh, velocity 
to where it should be in the high 90s at the first of the season. So uh, we can't really get a straight answer on any of this. The, but the bottom line is that he's throwing 97 and 98 now, and he's and his command has been good. If, the, if both those guys are going to be reliable in the bullpen, then you can get by with whatever Roldis Chapman is available to do for you. Uh, and maybe you can get something out of Chris Stratton. And then you're going to have all the, the, the starters who don't make the postseason rotation are going to get shoved back into the uh, bullpen. And that's going to make a big difference. So I do think, as you said, I do think that the Rangers can be very dangerous because l- let's face it, who's the dominant team in the AL? The Orioles have played very well this year. Um, they're missing their closer, who, who might have been the best uh, closer in the game. Uh, you know, Tampa Bay's won a lot of games this year, and they're, they're always good. Uh, the, the, the Rangers have had trob- problems with the Twins. They've had problems with the Astros all year long. Uh, anything can happen. But I, I, I do think that's the, the issue here. Anything can happen in AL. I don't think that there's any dominant team. As a matter of fact, ESPN Analytics yesterday had the Rangers down with the highest percentage chance to win the World Series of all the teams in the AL, 12%. They, that, that led all the teams in the AL. So ESPN believes in this team, whatever that means. Oh, well, uh, that, if ESPN believes in them. Well, then there we go. Well, they're the one. They're the ones in charge. Are they? Evan, yes, were you being are. sarcastic? Me? No. You're they're, not, okay. They're check. in control of everything. No. They're in control of, of broadcasting and the whole world. Why? You know, that's what you want. They that don't control of. this podcast. Kevin. That's right, buddy, pal. All of a sudden, we go blank. Test better. I told you how old you are. Uh, so anyway, yeah. Fan so that's, Graf, uh, I will just say this: that Fangraphs, as of this morning, does not have does not agree with ESPN. What does what does Fangraphs say, Evan? Fangraphs still says that the Astros have the best chance to win the World Series of the American League teams. I, I think probably, this afternoon, ESPN purchases fan graphs. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have any money left. They can't, they can't purchase anything. Uh, I, I, I think probably what ESPN has taken into consideration more than fan graphs is, is that the Astros would have to come out of the wild card to do this. Just a little bit of a harder road uh, than it would be for the Rangers. Uh, and, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, – uh, you know, we don't want to jump too far ahead here, but but the Rangers have been very good at home this year. Only only Tampa Bay in the American League has a better home record than the Rangers. Uh, so obviously, that's another reason why it's good to win the division, start out at home, uh, and have that that home field advantage at least for a little while. Uh, how much do you think that's a factor, Evan, in the playoffs? Well, um, listen, if we end up getting a Rangers-Astros playoff series at some point in time, you'll have a team that's played great at home in the Rangers against a team that's played great on the road in the Astros. Uh, And then you'll have a team that has not played great at home in in Houston against the Rangers who have played okay on the road. I Listen, I, I I think Kevin, you and I have talked a little bit about this. I mean, in terms of of home field van, advantage, I don't think that people, I don't think anybody has experienced what home field advantage could be for the Rangers in the postseason, um, because I do think that just as this fan base was starting to believe that this team could do something special this year, it went into its schizophrenic state and people started to jump off that bandwagon and they, they sat on their hands when they were at the ballpark. They didn't know what to do. And you and I were both out there Sunday when the Rangers, you know, jumped out to a seven, two lead. And then we saw the Astros Royals game go final on the scoreboard. And we felt the murmur in the stadium and we felt some spontaneous energy. And I think if the Rangers do reach the postseason here, I think people are going to fully believe, and I think that ballpark is going to be—it's going to be a ridiculous advantage. Um, I, it's going to be incredibly loud, like the Rangers had always uh, intended it for to be. And if you're playing the Astros, there's clearly even more passion involved in that situation. Um, it doesn't hurt at all for this team to get home field advantage. They've been a better team at home than they've been on the road. It's that simple. 
Yeah, you, uh, Adolis Garcia has hit, uh, I guess, what, almost twice as many home runs, I think, at home as he has on the road. Um, and I think that probably the tr- uh, that's true of Corey Seager as well. Maybe not quite to that extreme. Uh, but, yeah, some of these guys do uh, play play better there in the ballpark, uh, Globe Life Field. So we'll see what difference that makes. I, I, it is interesting that to note that I think uh, the Astros uh, – have a losing record at home, which is just phenomenal how that can happen. Uh, you know, especially that ballpark, you know, uh, you would think that uh, with the, that short left field out there that they had learned to maximize that, much like the uh, Red Sox have at Fenway Park. Um, but uh, that has not been the case this year. Just a very quirky kind of year here. So, Evan, uh, as it sets up right now, I know that you, you made a note about this with Max Scherzer uh, and the possibility of him returning. Uh, you know, the, the injury was described as a what? Uh, initially, uh, the kind of injury that would, would require multiple weeks for return. He's been out for less than two, I think, and he's already talking about, you know, getting back on a mound and throwing. Well, And I think we should clarify, when he talks about getting on a mound and throwing, he's not talking about pitching. He's just talking about throwing off a mound. No, but as I, you know, I was watching him throw yesterday, and, you know, we had talked about when he started playing catch last week, and he said, I'm just flicking the ball. I'm just using my wrist. Um, and I, I said to him yesterday, you're not flicking the ball right now. It looks like you're really putting your your arm into it. And he said, yeah, it's a step forward. And then he went into typical Max Scherzer lunatic talk, which is 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 great. Um and he wants to get back and he wants to pitch. And, and I said, so how can I characterize this? And and he finished it all off with the mound is closed. So I, I and I think that's also going to be the big test. You know, when you're striding down the mound and, and when you're when your body is going downhill, there's a different level of stress. And, and we'll see how that um, how that impacts that that shoulder um, and that area there. And also, you know, the concern there is. Pitching with that, and do you change the way you pitch? And if you change the way you pitch, do you risk a, an injury that may be more significant that don't that doesn't only keep you out of this year's postseason, but makes you unavailable for the start of next year? So those are all things the Rangers have to work through. I still go back to what Chris Young said uh, when this injury first took place that it's unlikely that Max pitches again this year, but Hey, you get through, you get a buy, and you get through the division series, and you're another two weeks down the road. Who knows? Who, who, who knows what adrenaline and competitive nature allows a guy to do? So I don't think he'd be a factor for this team before. I don't think it would be a question of him being a factor before the you got to an LCS and maybe not even a World Series. But listen, the fact that that guy that possibility is out there for somewhere down the road. It's a nice, it's, it's a nice, if anything, even if it's a fantasy, it's a nice one to entertain. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I can't endorse it though. Really? I, to me, you know, you're, you're already going to miss Jacob DeGrom for the start of next season and for probably most of it. I think it'd be awfully nice for the Rangers to start off next season with Max Scherzer at the top of their rotation and building after that. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not downgrading it, you know, obviously the potential for this year. If you get close, you got to go for it. But you also can't uh, – you got to be able to judge that, the risk-reward of is he really going to be healthy enough to pitch and, B, how effective would he be anyway? You know, uh, if he's not going to be really effective, well, then I, maybe I'd rather see something else. I mean, at this point, at this point, I think there's a legitimate question to ask, who would who would lead – a playoff uh, series at this point? Would it be Nathan Evaldi or would it be no, Jordan? I, I, think it would, I think it would have to be Jordan Montgomery right now. He's, he's, he's pitching. He's been the most trustworthy starter. Um, really, you know, with the exception of a little three start run, he's, he's been, he's been great. Um, he's pitching really well right now. He was unpredictable against Seattle last week. And I think that made him even more effective. Uh, I would think. Look, it, the way the thing the thing is set up right now, Montgomery starts on Thursday against Seattle, and if the Rangers were to play a wild card series, he'd be in line to start the first game of that. I think if if it's pushed back 
another four days to uh, a division series. In all likelihood, the same thing holds true. The Rangers would start Montgomery in game one. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, he, he's just pitched very well uh, and been very consistent. He's been the most consistent of all the starters here in the last couple of weeks. You know, uh, we, we saw what Jonathan Gray did for five innings uh, Monday night, uh, you know, except for the for the home run. He looked really good, uh, you know, but this is kind of what you get from John Gray. From one start to the next, you just don't really know what's going to happen. You know, he reminds me so much of Bobby Witt, a guy with really great stuff, uh, really not always sure exactly what he's doing. You know, how am I, how am I getting these pitches over, you know, and, and I feel like with, with John, what you get too is a little bit of insecurity about his ability. I just don't know that he really believes in it. I don't, when I watch him pitch, I don't know that he has conviction in his pitches. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, that bothers uh, Bruce Bochy as well. It's like when you, you're a veteran like he is, and you've got the stuff he's got. You got to, you just got to throw it, man. Let it go. He he doesn't have he his body language doesn't express a whole lot of confidence, and he seems he seems his body language kind of speaks defeatism on on occasion when things aren't going well. You know, I I I I don't know what to read. From body language, but yeah, I mean, it, it just seems to, I, I guess what you would like to see is a guy who, when things are going a little bit rougher, um, looks a little bit more confident and just looks like he's going to get out of the situation. I don't know if it would make him any more effective, but yeah, I, I think there are, it's easy to kind of glom onto that, that here's a guy when things aren't going great, he kind of looks like he's beaten down. And, you know, people used to always talk about Martin Perez and, when things weren't going great, he looked frustrated on the mound. Well, that didn't inspire confidence either. When John is not, when things aren't going great for John, it looks like his shoulders sag a little bit. It looks like his body slumps over a little bit. That that doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence either. No, but I think a lot of it too with him is it's not just what he looks like on the field; it's what he says afterwards. You know, you, you when you talk to him after games. Uh, it's there's that like it, it's just like a deer in the headlights almost. It's like I, I I can't you can't explain what happened or what went wrong and and you know um, and, and look he's not alone in that. There are you know hundreds and thousands of pitchers of course across the history of baseball with the same thing. You know guys with great stuff they just have a little bit of trouble uh, commanding it uh, and then or they have also problems with their confidence and their ability to throw those pitches. I think that's been the problem with this bullpen all year long. And we've seen that. Whether these guys have been really healthy or not, I don't know. Uh, But I do think I see more confidence in Jose LeClerc. I do see more confidence in Jonathan Hernandez. And those are two guys that the Rangers were counting on at one point as being their eighth and ninth inning pitchers. Now, uh, we can make the case that even at their, you know, at their best, they, they're not going to be a top-end bullpen or top-end back of a bullpen. That's not necessarily going to be the best in the game, but it certainly would be good enough. If the, Look, if, if this this team and the way the bullpen is pitched this year, if both those guys and Chapman are available for the eighth and ninth innings, well, then that's going to be improvement over the entire season of what they've had. Because as, you know, as effective as Will Smith was at times, that was a lot of smoke and mirrors. Uh, and... I, I really feel like it, this team is. It looks like it's going to win the division with a horrific bullpen performance this season. If they could just be average, think what this team might be able to do. I can't. Yeah, there's nothing I can add to that, quite frankly. Yeah, that, that, I think that's pretty much it. All right, that's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. We're going to slip over now into that team that is not on top of the world the dallas cowboys um who went out to arizona and just laid a big fat egg out there uh david it was just kind of it was just kind of bad all the way around i I guess special teams weren't weren't terrible were they well except for that 51 yard punt return that got called back and they lost 61 (laughs) yards and that's uh, right yeah that's right because of a holding call on the uh on the punt return that would have flipped the field and given them a chance to 
Well, let's say it would have given them a chance to kick a field goal because they weren't doing real good in the red zone, were they? <laughs> That's all they do now is kick field goals. But no, th- this was a this 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 was the the sort of complimentary football you hope not to see, where all three phases of the game uh, did not respond uh, and, and really kind of mirrored the some of the issues that the other group had there. And look, you know, the, the offense, again, they were only one of five in the red zone, which means in, they're only two of 11 here in the last or, or three of 11, excuse me, the last two games. So addressing their red zone issues is, is certainly a folk, focal point this week heading into the New England game. And of course, I mean, New England's easy to score on in the red zone, right? With Bill Belichick as, a, as their coach. Um, so that yeah. that's going to take them some time to work through that, I think. But, you know, when I look at this game and, and you want to assign blame when something is so unexpected, right? Uh, and while there is plenty of blame to go around, I will say that this game was set up to get off to a slower, rocky start offensively because you were playing without three starters in the offensive line and two of them weren't even a question until late in the week so this team practiced by and large for the week assuming they would only be without one of them and then wound up without three so I I think that was an adjustment period you certainly saw it early in the game you had two penalties on the offensive line in the first possession and two sacks in the second possession so but what have we talked about with this team that the identity of this team has flipped, that the driving force to their success week in and week out starts defensively, not offensively. And so to me, it was incumbent on the defense, knowing that there were unexpected unexpected issues in the offensive line late that would compromise the Cowboys' game plan offensively and efficiency, especially early in the game until they had a chance to get out there and kind of work through some things. It was incumbent on them to set the tone early. And what did that defense, who wants to be known as an elite defense, do? They allowed the Cardinals to score on five possessions, all five possessions it had in the first half. So to me, you don't have to go, yes, I I know what the offense didn't do. I know that huge mistake on special teams. But when you look at why the Cowboys lost this game, I, it starts with the defense in my mind, no question whatsoever. No, there's no, yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent. That's a, uh, you know, you can see though, how this thing could happen uh, from a couple of standpoints. Uh, one that they're still not great against the run. Right. So that, that, yeah. that's, that was an issue. Two, Second play they're here with the 44 yard run. Yeah, exactly. And and of course, it's it's just the same thing. I can remember uh, way back in my uh, formative years uh, when I was coming to the University of Houston and and, uh, uh, when Arkansas had a player named Billy Ray Smith, uh, who went on to play a long time in the NFL and his dad also played the NFL. Billy Ray was a little undersized, but really fast and really good. And uh, Yeltman said that the the way you got to play a guy like that is you run right at him. He said, mm-hmm. you can't run away from him because he's so fast, he'll chase things down. You have to overpower him is what you have to do, basically. And in, and in some of these situations, they they sucked uh, Micah Parsons in and let, and, and let his aggressiveness work against him and work against the Cowboys' defense. And to me, that's just good coaching. You know, the, the Cardinals just figured out a plan that was specifically for the Cowboys, not necessarily for anybody else they're going to play. This this is a plan for the Cowboys, and they and they worked it to, to perfection. Uh, and and that was embarrassing that that could happen, and that they would allow that to happen. And you 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 hate to see teams. Uh, you want teams to swarm to the ball, right, on defense. Yeah. But when guys are are overcommitting and and not filling the lanes that they're supposed to do on defense, that that's just undisciplined. You know, and it, and it's not good football. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot more. Discipline is a lot more than just not drawing penalties. It's knowing what your role is and what you're supposed to be doing and doing that, and quit acting like you are sharks in the water smelling blood. You know, just do what you're supposed to do and stop the play. That's the Achilles' heel, right? Because they are an undersized defense. Uh, they do swarm to make up for that, but you have to be disciplined, and so. Uh, 
look, the Cardinals aren't the first team to use the fact that, uh, you know, Micah Parsons and some others overcommit to what they see initially in, in disguise. But you adapt to that, right? You don't take an entire half to adapt to that, which, which is what happened. Uh, and, and you're exactly right. What they were doing is I, I think they got Micah Parsons on his heels. They, they got him with some misdirection early, including that 44-yard run by Dobbs, the quarterback we just talked about. Look, the Cardinals had four runs of 20 or more yards in a span of 12 plays in the first half. So um, Dallas knew what was going on and was just too slow to adapt. And I think they, you're exactly right. They drew him one direction and did a quick hitter the other when he was going one way, doing a quick hitter the other. And then they got Parsons back on his heels a little bit. Then they just went right at him. And look, that's how you neutralize a, a, a game-changing pass rusher anyway. Um, but, but that's it. If you, everyone's going to attack your weakness, and that's where – any good team is going to attack Dallas, and and they know they need to stand up to that, and they didn't do it. And to me, it was a slow reaction, and and, and this is this is classic too, you know, because uh, and this is how quickly things change. But look, Micah Parsons does deserve to be in the conversation about defensive MVP, and if you're up in that range, why not talk about whether or not he could be MVP of the league based on how things went, you know? And that's what everyone wanted to do after week two. Well. There's an obligation and a responsibility that goes with that, right? Now, I've seen some people say, well, but you look at Micah Parsons' numbers from this game. He got a sack. He got some pressures. He didn't play that bad. How did he play in the first half when they needed him to step up? How was he performing when the game got away from them? That's when they needed Micah Parsons. That's what great players do. They step up in in the moment. And when they needed him in the first half, he was actually a liability in a lot of those plays. Now, he wasn't alone. Uh, He wasn't alone by any means. But uh, if you're the face of the defense, if you have thrust yourself into the defensive player of the year conversation, which is legitimate, you have to show up when your team needs you the most, and, and he didn't. Now, to his credit and to his understanding of his position, he did, he did say on several occasions after the game, I own this. You know, I, I set the tone. I didn't do a good job setting the tone. This group feeds off my energy. It feeds off me being where I need to be. I didn't do that to start this game. So he acknowledges it. Um, and it, it, it was pretty apparent, I thought. He, he, he wasn't up to his standards. And because he wasn't up to his standards to start the game, the overall defense wasn't up to its standards either. Yeah, and I will say as a caveat for the for the defense, and there's no excuses or anything, but when you have a quarterback like Joshua Dobbs, who's obviously this is not an NFL caliber starting quarterback. You know, he's a career backup. That's what he's always been. He does present some athletic uh, things that you have to account for. That's not what Mac Jones is going to be. That's not, that's yeah. not what, you know, the you know, other teams, you know, that's certainly what, what, what Zach Wilson is or what Daniel Jones, even though Daniel Jones does run the ball pretty well, they're, they're, they're living in the pocket mostly. And that's what the, you know, the Cowboys are, are built for to attack. So I do think going forward that, that some of these issues will not arise again. And, and you, you would only hope that when they, they do, that they're able to correct them a lot sooner than they would. Uh, I will say that on the offensive side, and, and certainly it's a great point, to, to, when you're missing three starting offensive linemen, that's never good. Uh, and that, that's going to be an issue. Especially and and again, another point. Center. Yeah, another point on that is, and when two of them go down late in the week, after most of your practice time has been done, so you didn't get the practice reps to prepare the guys who were going to replace them. To me, that was the other issue on this. It's not just the fact, oh, well, they weren't there. Well, you, you didn't know Biotish wasn't going to be there until Thursday. You didn't know, um, you didn't know Tyron Smith wasn't going to be there until 90 minutes before the game because he right. came up with his injury on Saturday. So all week, uh, Tyron Smith practiced at left tackle and then doesn't play a snap in the game. So that was where, you know, they just weren't able to adequately prepare, I think, their guys the way they wanted, which is why 
I, you know, I think they had to severely compromise their playbook because of the pressure and because of what they were asking guys to do. And they went, okay, this is out. This is out. This. I know a lot of people went, well, why didn't you use Deuce Vaughn more? Well, you have three starters out of the offensive line. You're going to use an undersized back where protecting the quarterback is going to be an issue. Of course, he's not going to be in in the packages he was going to be used because you're going to you're going to look somewhere else. So I think uh, I don't think we have any idea how much we can only speculate, but I, I think there was a dramatic impact on uh, the playbook that the the game plan they had on Wednesday when they did their first full practice to get ready for the game. I think what was actually available to to, to them uh, by the time the game got around was was quite restricted. Yeah, I don't have any doubt about that either. That's, that's certainly going to have an impact on you. <laughs> we'll say if I ever, though, you know, the thing about uh, Dak Prescott at this point in his career and uh, and, and watching the uh, the Eagles beat the Bucks uh, on Monday Night Football, it just brought more to bear, the point more to bear for me, is that when Dak Prescott assumed the starting role as quarterback when Tony Romo was hurt, the difference in the offense at that point was, as, as we go back and remember, then that the, that the Cowboys were having problems in the uh, red zone then at the end of Tony's career. Uh, and and then when Dak came along, it was clear the difference that he made was that, well, he, he works with his feet. I mean, Tony was pretty nifty at getting out of jams and things, but he was not going to take off running. No. You know, yeah. that was that was not his deal. He was always looking downfield. Yeah, uh, and, and you didn't want him in traffic throwing his body in harm's way, especially later in his career. Oh, no, not at all. Not with that back. So uh, so, so Dak presented that issue. And I, I know we've, we've talked about this all the time, but look, it is a very real thing. You know, I'm, I'm watching that game with the Eagles and the Bucks last night, and when Jalen Hurts gets out in the end, and, t- and Troy Eggman's talking about, oh, they've just got so many things they can do. And it's like, no, no, they don't. This is what they do. It's that Jalen Hurts gets, he, he drops back, he rolls out, and then he just takes off. I mean, it's not rocket science. And then, and then, of course, we see what they do in their short yardage package when it's third and one or fourth and one. And as they said, if you don't get it on third and one, we just go for it again on fourth and one. You know, you cannot stop that. That's statistic where they said that they were 39 of 41 or something like that in the, in the last year and in what, you know, a year and two games, three games on on short yardage like that. Yeah. It, when they line up in that power package, it's just unstoppable. And, and to me, that's what makes the Eagles so predictable, that right now that, yeah, the Eagles are better than the Cowboys. I, I think the Cowboys' defense may ultimately end up being better than the Eagles defense, although Jalen Carter has just all of a sudden really come on and really given them a phenomenal. Yeah, he really and, has. And well, he was supposed to have been the first pick of the draft, right? Until the yeah. whole incident with the with the wreck and the the, and the mortality uh, fatality there. Um, so and then he dropped because of that. Uh, but this is what people expected him to be, and that's and that's what he's doing. Uh, so that they may they may end up being just as good a defense. But on offense, we know who the Eagles are. We know what they're going to do. In short yardage, they're going to do that, and you can't stop it. You can do whatever you want, but you cannot stop it. You cannot stop it twice in a row for sure. And there's the unpredictability of what Jalen Hurts is going to do when he gets out of the pocket. And then they, they throw the ball to a, he throws the ball to AJ Brown, and you know when he gets the ball in his hands, he's like a running back. You know he's 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 you know he catches a pass out in the flat, and three guys bounce off of him, and he gains another ten yards. You know it's just. Uh, he's. They are a very physical, powerful team. That's their identity. That's who they are, and that's how they play. And they know they're going to do that every week. I think the Cowboys, with Mike McCarthy calling the plays, want to be that kind of offense in a way. They want to be a powerful, run-control offense. I'm not sure they can do that. And I want to segue from that into what, uh, the fact that that old running back of the Cowboys is coming back this week. Uh, Zeke Elliott. And and I was one of the ones to say it's time to move on from Zeke. But I gotta tell you, if you weren't gonna replace the power part of what he brought to that the Cowboys offense and what they want to do and what they want to be, I don't know that this can work, can it? Well, that's it. I mean, um, you know, what I think eleven touchdowns last year, however many Elliott had, all were in the red zone. Now, I, I will say in these last two weeks, I think I think one of their 
their, their main issue to me in the red zone right now is they're not picking up anything on first and second down, and you've, you've wound up with some third and eights, third and twelves, third and sevens. Uh, those are always hard to do, but but they're next to impossible in the red zone uh, unless you score. It's really putting you in a bind. So um, those are situations where it's easy to say, well, they'll be better in the red zone with Elliott. And I do believe that was his greatest value to this team in, in that position over the last couple of years. But um, he's not going to be running the ball or be in the play on the on the third and sevens back on the eight yard line, you know. So right. Um, so, but yeah. Uh, it, it, and you're right. That, that's the other thing. When when you tweak the offense the way they have, and now it's this Texas Coast offense, they don't have a signature play or anything on their offense right now, right? That they're still developing. I mean, we're three weeks into the season. No wide receiver has a touchdown pass in the first three weeks. I don't think they want that to be their identity. Yeah. Um, you know, when they're getting in there close, uh, Pollard does have a, a few touchdown runs here, but he's not. it's not like they get in and it's first and goal on the five, and it's just like, well, just hand the ball to Pollard until he scores. Um, so you don't have that element or Dowdle. Uh, would would be the the other guy you would hand it to in that situation, you know. One of their one of their few red zone scores is from Turpin, Cavante Turpin, when they ran that little zone uh, zone left read with him. So, yeah, I, I did think it was interesting, and you this is kind of how you started this whole thing. Um, af- after after. Or, or during the answer when Dak was talking about, um, well, you know, you guys, you know, built us up like we were going to go undefeated. No team's ever gone undefeated, and which no one ever suggested after two games they were going to go undefeated. No. And, you know, but you do that just to build, you know, tear us down. And, and look, there is a segment of the media that does do that, but it's not the segment that, that covers day-to-day, and, and it's not the majority of the media that does that. But anyway, let's take that off the table. In giving that answer and talking about the red zone uh, issues they've had, he said twice in giving his answer, you know, maybe I need to run more down in there. Maybe we need that as an option to kind of help get this thing going. And I agree completely. I think now when you get in there uh, on first down, make the RPO part of this. Make make the role right and give, you know, Dak that option to, say, assess the play, see what's going on, and then lower his head and run if he needs to. Because while his speed is not great, like what it was, He's still a pretty powerful runner for a quarterback and a very smart and shrewd runner, I would argue. And, and I, I I think there's less, by and large, there may be less chance of a, an injury in that situation than there is just, you know, running on other parts of the field. You know you're going to get hit. He knows how to take a hit when it's coming. Uh, I think he's a powerful runner. He runs. He can run close to the ground. I, I just, I my belief is, especially this week, you may see his mobility when they're in the red zone come into play a little bit more. And maybe that's the. I, I'm not saying it's a steady diet of it, but it has to be in there where it's a threat, right? No, absolutely. And that, that and you're exactly right. You know, when we talk about Dak running more, we're not talking about 15 no, times a game. No, we're talking about six times a game. You know. Uh, at most, at most, yeah, yeah, at most, absolutely. There was a there was a play down there when they're in the red zone, and Dak was running to his right, uh, and he tried to force a pass into the end zone. It was incomplete, and there was nobody within five yards of him. He should have yeah. just run that time. And see, that's what I we're overthinking this. That's one of the things Troy Aikman said last night that I really like. He, this is kind of his soapbox: is that he thinks offensive coordinators want to show you how smart they are all the time. And and when you see a, a guy lined up soft on AJ Brown, throw the ball to AJ Brown. Yeah, you know yeah. that's the play. That that that's what you do. And and, and yeah. to me, it's like we're overthinking this thing. When you don't need a lot of scheme it. on this one. Yeah, here's the no, matchup. Just do it. You, that's exactly right. And when you and when and when Dak is running there, and there's five yards in front of you, and you're and you're seven yards from the goal line, take the five yards. You yeah. know, 
they they just need to do that. There's those things. It's like when I've, I've written about these robot umpires and the whole idea of, well, how much difference does it really make if an umpire misses two or three or four calls a game? It makes a lot of difference. There's a yeah. big difference between a one-two count and a two-one count. And it's the same thing in football. You just need a couple of these plays. You know, frankly, if they'd gotten the, the interference call uh, down there in the end zone when, when uh, uh, Michael yeah. Gallup yeah, uh, didn't get that, that's a terrible call. That should have been uh, an inter- interference. And so then that makes a big difference in the game right there, right? You get that mm-hmm. touchdown, then that makes a big difference. Uh, so it doesn't take a lot to kind of unlock things and make uh, and make things happen, and, and the, the results are entirely different. It's just a question of, of getting those. And I, and I just think that it, it, it makes all the difference in the world because, look, I think Jalen Hurts has, has, has moved past Dak now. I think he's a better quarterback than Dak is. I think that's not a that's not a revelation. I think a lot of people will tell you that. Uh, and first of all, he is younger and he's healthier probably than than Dak is. But he's also playing in an offense that plays to his strengths perfectly. This mm-hmm. they have everything they have built there with the Eagles kind of all meshes together on, on offense anyway. And and they everything that they want to be they have built to that. And it's not a surprise what they do. What Jalen Hurts just gives you in that package is just the unpredictability. What's he going to do here? You can bottle yep. everything up all you want, and he's going to scramble out here. He's not going to necessarily run for 40 yards, but he's going to get four or five or six or whatever, and and that's going to make a, a big difference. And I just think that Dak is going to have to start doing that a little bit more for this team to to really kind of maximize his potential. I do think that you know every every NFL team has a bad loss. Every everyone every season you have at least one bad loss. It's just that the Cowboys have already used theirs, so that's that's not something you want to do. You you want to be building something here, and then you get to later in the season and when you're kind of dinged up, and then uh, then maybe you get a bad loss and it's okay. Uh, it's just that that yeah. was that one was bad from about every angle. Yeah, and that stretch in December when you have. Buffalo, Miami on the road, and then get Detroit at home. You're going to wish you had that Arizona win. Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for the Cowboys segment of our podcast. We're going to move over to the old, ever-popular potpourri. Uh, we don't have a lot of potpourri. We've only got Evan a couple. loves potpourri. This Evan is does Evan's it. favorite spot. I think that he's got potpourri there in his hotel room. Do you know Evan's, Evan's tuned out. I, 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 <laughs> I just want to know. Nobody used the phrase Texas Toast offense this week. Texas Toast. I like that better. That, that would have been good. It, the, the Texas Coast offense was Texas Toast. Boy, I wish I out there could have done that. I may still use that. I'm going to save that for later. Meanwhile, Evan's drunk and is it's out right of the podcast. It's, it's right there for you. And no, we're not going to talk about Dion this week in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. No, forty-two to six. As as what about uh, Oregon? You talk about that. Oregon. Yeah, that's a pretty good team. No, look, it's a one and eleven team from last year going up against Oregon, which is a team competing for the college football playoff. So no one is really expecting them to win. I don't think Dion expected. I got to tell you something. I don't think Dion expected to beat TCU. My uh, my, I, my point on Dion is is not that he's taking them to a national championship or anything this year or that, that he was going to upset Oregon. My point on De- on Dion just remains that he is a perfect match for this, for this time. And I mean, he's got the opportunity to use that whole Oregon loss and how they were beaten. You know, there were already film clips of him going up to an Oregon heckler right after the game and giving him a hug and, you know, people caught that on film, and and he's got the opportunity to use these things because he is so charismatic, and because he can do stuff um, with uh, with the narrative to take this and say, "Look, this loss was good for these guys. I can give them the hard truth. They needed this." Da 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 da, da and play that in his favor too. It's not for right now. I I think Dan Lanning's comment uh, in his pregame speech to his his Oregon team where he talked about that Colorado is searching for clicks and we're searching for wins, I think was pretty appropriate. But I think in the long term, searching for clicks is a good is a good recipe to eventually getting yourself to a place where you're in a position to win. And uh, my, my point on Dion is 
We started this segment saying we were not going to talk about Dion, and we've just talked about him for two minutes. He we wins did. again. He wins Dion again. Dion wins. Dion wins. Yeah, no question about it. I, but, you know, poor, stupid me. I'm just always the kind of guy who says, if you say this, shouldn't you mean it? Uh, and and when, when Dion says that people are talking about, you know, they're talking about playing me, not my team, and that shows you how wrong all these people are. Well, then what did Dion say after that game? You know, he, he, he used the term me. Yeah, you better come get me now because I'm coming for you. It's like, Dion, I thought it was, I thought it was about your team and not about you. So these are the kind of issues I have. I struggle with with Dion. But, but I have to say, uh, and as I wrote in that column a couple of weeks ago, the team is really good. He's done a really good job here. And this is all fun. I just want him to lighten up a little bit. Lighten up and have fun, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I, I just don't think you need to be disingenuous about things. Evan made the the comparison to the pirate, uh, you know, um, and I and I don't think that uh, that was a fair comparison. Really looking back on it, because most of the time he was he was fun. He said funny things, and we all had a great time with him. Uh, and then when he said stuff that was ludicrous, we called him on it. You know, that's just the way it works. All right, let's talk a little bit about college football now. Uh, Texas just demolished Baylor in the in the last game that was ever going to be played between those two teams. Uh, I don't know if that's really going to be the last game. But I will say this. It's going to be really hard for uh, for Baylor to ever get back on Texas' schedule. Uh, going to the SEC, they're not going to schedule any Power 5 programs from the Big 12. No, that's just not going to happen. I, I don't know that it'll be a long time before they play anybody from the, from the Big 12 again. Um and that was not a way for Baylor to go out in that situation. Uh, Dave Aranda had done a great job a couple of years ago, and now the question has come up, was he winning with Matt Rule's players? Is that what the deal was? Because certainly these last two years, uh, last year was not good, and this year has started out terribly, uh, frankly. So, uh, And I really like Dave Aranda. I think he's a really good person and a really good coach, uh, and he's good for college football. Uh, and But at this rate, he's not going to last very long. Uh, meanwhile, Texas is uh, playing very well. This is Texas' biggest or best start, I think, since 2005 or 2009, I believe. Uh, so they've been very impressive. They, you know, had their moments where they didn't look as good, uh, you know, against Wyoming, not so good. Uh, but they have uh, kind of righted the ship a little bit. And there's a really big feeling here that Texas maybe really has headed towards the CFP. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, because they are playing well. They do have a lot of talent. Uh, could have as many as 10 players drafted. Um, but also, they have, um, frankly, not a very hard road to hoe here. This is not going to be very difficult for them, I don't think, in the in the Big 12. We'll see what Oklahoma presents for them at State Fair in a couple of weeks. Um, but if they get past Oklahoma, and I know they've struggled with Kansas State, they have struggled with Kansas, they have struggled with TCU, and maybe that all happens again. I just don't see it. I, I don't see them losing to any of those teams now, and I don't think it's going to hurt Texas with the committee for a couple of reasons. One, uh, because they are Texas. Two, and it's a very talented team. The coaches always love the talent on a team. Uh, the coaches on the committee, anyway. Uh, two, uh, they beat Alabama, uh, and I think that's going to be enough. If they can point to on the committee and say beating Alabama in Tuscaloosa, that's enough to do it. And if they beat Oklahoma too, uh, then that should be enough for them. And uh, I, I just feel like this is a team that really is setting itself up to do something now, which would really be good because I, I got to tell you, uh, there's some really bad football being played in the Big 12 these days. Uh, some of these games are, have been really bad. Uh, some some poor performances. And, this has been as uh, down as it's been overall in a while, isn't it? Yeah, it just it's just I mean got, across the board. I mean, you, you yeah, across you, the board. Usually had a few more teams that are playing a higher level. Absolutely, you do, and and so that's that's been the uh, the real issue is that uh, they're they're just not. The, 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 look, when when Colorado came in and beat TCU. Uh, you know, TCU's coming off playing in the national championship game, right? And so you expect them to be at least decent. Um, they didn't look very good against SMU either. I mean, they handled SMU, and and I will say, 
I was impressed with their play and their secondary, their cornerbacks. They look like Gary Patterson cornerbacks. They're all over the place. Uh, they're making great plays and breaking on the ball. And, and, and so that's very promising for TCU. But offensively, they're, they're still not quite there. Chandler Morris is still struggling a little bit uh, to make the proper reads. You know, he, he, he loves that quick release. You know, he loves that little, like he's throwing a dart. And, and I get it. And you want to show that off. But every once in a while, when a guy's running wide open, just lay it out there for him. You don't have to act like you're throwing a dart to him. And I think he struggles with that. That's one of the reasons why they, I believe they lost the game to Colorado. If he just hit a wide open tight end going, Jared Wiley going across the middle of the field, they got a first down and they might've gone down there and scored because Colorado couldn't stop them all day long. So, um, uh, so they had a lot, a big hand in making uh, the, the, the uh, Colorado Dion uh, uh, factor, wow factor. So uh, yeah, I, I just don't see it this year. There, there's, there's just not been any good performances. Teams are losing everybody. Texas tech is regressing to the mean. Yeah. Now, I think a little bit too, after having such a good year and Joey McGuire's first year. So uh, if the, 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 the good news is that Texas is playing really well. And Texas has got a chance to go to the, the CFP and, and maybe even make a, a little run there. Um, the bad news is that Texas is on its way out. <laughs> and so th- this is the last year for Texas and Oklahoma in the Big 12. You know, as Brett Yormark made it clear, he wanted everybody to send a message to Texas about that. Um, and I don't think that they can. Uh, and, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens going forward here? And we've talked about SMU and joining the ACC. And I was talking to an SMU alum in the press box the other day at, in Fort Worth, and uh, they're joining a better league. The ACC is a better league than the Big 12 is right now, and they'll be a lot better next year, I think, not because of yeah. SMU, but because of the teams that they're adding. That's, that's you know, Florida State, Clemson, those are good programs. Uh, the Big 12 – won't have anything like that next year. Not with the the way that things are going now with Oklahoma State going into the tank and uh, TCU not playing as well this year, Baylor going backwards, Texas Tech going backwards. I mean, who's going to step up and be the big star of the Big 12 going forward? We'll have to wait to see what that's going to be. Uh, David, we also want to talk about the, uh, the fact that the Mavericks uh, have their media day Friday. I'm going to go out there and, and check all that out. And they've got a brand-new roster and – and uh, the, the good news is that Jason Kidd has signed off on what Nico Harrison did over the summer. I guess unlike he did last summer when he brought in a couple of guys to give up a first-round draft pick uh, and, and Christian Wood for Christian Wood and then JaVale McGee, and neither one of those guys ended up doing much of anything for the uh, Mavericks last year, not to mention the fact that you know they didn't re-sign Jalen Brunson. So that was a really bad summer. Uh, yeah. Do you think that they've done enough this summer to make them a more viable candidate? Well, um, we never we never got to see how good Kyrie Irving and Luca could be together, and and that's the one thing I was puzzled by. Look, it's always um, when you when you make a trade that late in the season, I mean, you should probably anticipate it's not going to come together for you, especially when you have such kind of two ball dominant guys like Luca and Kyrie Irving, because they're both, you're, you're going to have to, that requires the, the coaching to put them in spots where each of them still gets to handle it enough to where they feel comfortable and, uh, you know, be able to play off the other's game, um, so you knew that wasn't going to come together, but, but what surprised me last year was how little the two were on the court together at the same time for the remainder of that season. I mean, there were a lot of games where it's just like, nope, well, Kyrie Irving's not playing tonight or Luca's not playing tonight. And, uh, then you looked up and you only had, you had such a small sample size together. So yeah, I, I think even though by and large, these moves in and of themselves, don't excite anybody. I mean, they're more athletic, have a little more size. Uh, defensively, you can interchange parts now. Uh, defensively, maybe you can make up for the defense efficiencies that your two top players have on that side of the ball and, and still have enough scoring to make a team pay, uh, you know, when they're gambling. 
So I, I, I do think it's a better constructed team uh, than it was last year. Um, you know, but, you know, again, we'll see. I, I, I will say whenever you have a young player at Lucas' skill set level and status and another player who remains one of the top 10 players in the league, there is no question they have two of the top 10 players in the NBA right now on one team. It's incumbent on them to make it work, and I think everyone else plays off of them, their teammates. So everyone's aware of what the landscape is now. It's can they – and I, I, once again, I would say I wouldn't anticipate them to get off to a particularly fast start. But as this season goes along, this team should look much more cohesive, uh, I, I would argue, pretty quickly uh, down the road. Yeah, yeah so he, I think they should be better. The, 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 they should be, uh, and, and it's interesting to me that they have. Uh, and but they shouldn't have been course, as bad as they were last year, even no, even, even no, after no, making that trade. You know? No, because you could make the argument. Well, look, it's a different team now than it was because they added you know Kyrie in the middle of the season, and they didn't know they were going to do that. So obviously, you would change the the way you build the team. But the way they built the team last year was poor. You know, they didn't they didn't yes. add the right players to the mix. I mean, I, I don't even know if Nico talked to Jason Kidd about it, uh, about exactly what it is that he wanted. Uh, apparently he did talk about it this time. Now with the first round draft pick, they're they're given an indication that, that Derek Lively could start. I don't think that that was anything anybody was counting on when they drafted him, considering yeah. the fact that he played so little last year in college. So uh, we'll, we'll see if that actually happens. I'm interested, though, to know, uh, because I, I, J.C. Kidd did say in, in an interview the other day that uh, they, they would like to see the to get uh, Luka Doncic's minutes under 40 a game. Now, to me, there's a way to say that, and when it makes it sound like, oh, these new guys you added are going to enable that to happen. I wonder, though, David, if that's a way to disguise the fact that you're trying to give more of those minutes with the ball to Kyrie Irving. Kyrie, right. I think that's exactly what's going to go on. Yeah, I, I think you, you use each guy to reduce the minutes and the load on the other, but still give them plenty of rain. It's like, okay, well, you're running this thing now. Uh, so so it's about finding that balance. Luca's still going to get most of that, but yeah. there are got to be moments where Kyrie is kind of like, well, no, this, this is yours now, and everything's running through you. And, and that's a way to supplement that and do it to a level – Look, and both of them are going to have to make sacrifices for this to work. You know, both are going to have to concede a little something uh, to the strength in the other's game and be willing to complement uh, the others at some point versus them always have, you know, them always forcing the other one to adapt. And usually that is not an issue with great players that have this sort of age difference to them. You know, if, if, if they acquired another star player that was close to Luca's age, I think that's a much more difficult uh, chemistry to develop long-term because then you're asking one guy to sacrifice what his status in the league is going to be going forward. But Kyrie Irving is not sacrificing anything at this stage of his career to feed into what Luca does best. And Luca is only going to enhance his status as someone who wants to win by showing, okay, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to defer to Kyrie as much as he defers to me, but I'm going to do it. And so, and look, if he doesn't do this, the idea of, of getting any other star player to play with Luca the rest of his time, that that's going to be difficult to pull off too, right? Who's going to want to do that? So it goes beyond just whether or not it works between these two. I think it also speaks to what it, how is Luca going to be perceived for the remainder of his career? There's something of a, I hate to say a crossroads. I don't know that it's that dramatic, but does he want to be the guy who is always the, the lead dog, never has anything to show for it, or uh, is he going to show a, a little something else here? So I think I think it's uh, I think it's big for uh, both of them, and it's certainly for this franchise and where it is. 
Well, no question about that. I, I, I do think, you know, the, and you make a great point about they got two of the top 10 players in the league. Unfortunately, they're both point guards. Uh, yeah. And I think that was, and they, that's, they, they, yeah. Yeah, they, but they, they made the enough. trade knowing that, right? They made the trade knowing well, that. Oh, sure, absolutely. On them put a system in place that accommodates. Yeah, they, they, they wanted the, the the talent. There's no question about that. You know, then they're getting that kind of talent. It, it would have been better if it'd been a power forward or a small yeah. forward. That, that that would have been better if that's what you were getting. Was another top ten player who would play one of those positions. It just would have been a lot easier. As it is now, they got to figure out a way to make this work. You know, it would be easy to say. Well, Luca's going to come out in the first quarter because he's a fast starter, and and, they, and you and you pile up 10, 15 points in the first quarter, and then okay, then you let then you let uh, Kyrie take the second quarter, and then Luca comes back, you know, back in the third quarter. But the deal is, everybody wants to be on the floor in the fourth quarter, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, how and you do want you want your best players work? on the floor in the fourth quarter? And Absolutely. that's the other so, thing. You want your best players on the floor in the fourth quarter of close games and so they're going to have to work together they're going to have to complement each other they're going to have to make that the work to make that uh have to work to make that work out you know you know how it is with great players it's uh, it's like even if the guy's not having a good game you still go to him you know and and that that's what you do it's not not like you go with a hot hand i don't know that in this situation that you can just decide well we're just going to go with a hot hand here between the two of them here in the fourth quarter at the end Maybe they do that and maybe they don't. I don't know. Uh, it'll be just very interesting to see how they can get that to work. Uh, it'll be, you know, frankly, I think it, it, it determines how much longer Jason Kidd's going to be the, the head coach, right? Oh, I mean, no question. Sure. I mean, can can you keep uh, uh, Jason Kidd as the head coach for two years in a row? You squander that kind of talent? Uh, and we can make the argument whether that's his fault or not, but you know the head coach is always going to pay for it. doesn't matter. Well, Again, you went to the Western Conference Finals beyond before anyone expected, and you follow that up by being in the lottery, and then you follow that up with uh, a one-and-done in the postseason or whatever. That is a two steps back uh, from where you were, and, that, and that's not going to get it done. No, that's not going to do it. All right, speaking of getting it done, we just did. Uh, that's uh, that's our podcast for this week. We appreciate you coming on and uh, listening to it. Uh, we will be back next week when we will see if the Cowboys have rebounded and gotten back on top of the world or not. Uh, maybe we can bring in a little song sitting on top of the world. We think about that. That'd be great. Uh, and we'll see where the Raiders are. Uh, we'll know this next week on Monday. We'll know whether they're the, the division champs, which would just be phenomenal considering – where they've been the last few years and where they were two weeks ago. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks and we'll see you next time.